So my guest this week is someone many of you will know from his work at Microsoft as part of the SQL Server Analysis team and then Integration Services after that, and then more recently from his work at Click as their VP of Innovation and Design. So none other than Donald Farmer. So Donald, uh, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on and speaking to us. Oh, thanks very much, Mark. It's a delight to be here. So I can obviously tell from your accent, Donald, that you're from Scotland. So tell us a bit about, I suppose, your kind of background and, uh, and how you came into this industry and how you ended up writing your first predictive application, which I understood was for fish farming. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> gosh. Um, so I, I started... I mean, I worked as a as a consultant, as a technology consultant for some years on my own in Scotland. I'd, I actually started as a historian and an, an archaeologist, and I was working um, a lot with computers at that time, building databases and, and, and analytic systems. But then I actually had to make some money, so um, being a consultant was a good way of doing that. And from that, I got into kind of working in fields, as you say, like fish farming and um, hydroelectric uh, things like that, and and creating systems for for, for that. Um, and from there, I got into working in building products, not just sort of building, um, doing consulting, but actually building products. Worked in um, a great little company in Aberdeen in Scotland uh, called AppSmart, and we built products on a Microsoft stack, um, which were, were effectively data warehouse rapid development tools. I worked with a great team there, including some well-known Microsoft people now. Um, Ewan Garden is, is now a big figure at Microsoft. And um, and then from there, I moved to Microsoft itself in 2001. Worked there for just about 10 years. Worked on analysis services and integration services, which was my, my great pleasure to work on that. That was a tremendous product, a tremendous team, and building something from scratch was very exciting. Worked on the data mining team, uh, which was which was very cool, and um, started the Power Pivot project. That, that had really started as an incubation through the work of um, Thierry Dare, um, who is now at uh, Tableau working there. But he really incubated the Power Pivot project. I took it over to put it into production to actually make it a product, which is kind of what I specialize in—you know, productizing things. Um, and then having done that, it was time to do something else. And so I, I went to Click, um, helped to build their new product, ClickSense. And again, that's a, a, a building a product from scratch almost, which was which was kind of exciting. And then having done that, and then as Click matured after about five years at Click, it was time to uh, to do something else again. And now I'm independent, and I advise investors and product companies on data analytics strategy innovation that sort of thing fantastic and i'd like to get onto that later on i mean i think um like you say the advice for the kind of product companies advice for investors that's that's kind of very interesting and i think your views on where the market's going and where the opportunities are will be really interesting um but to kind of set to set the scene really so so you i mean i got to know you through your work on analysis services and back in those days i was working largely on oracle technology and and we always saw analysis services is a fantastic product that was you know I personally found it very very hard to compete against when I was in the consulting world and it was just so well put together and, and certainly the comments I've heard is people describing the work you did as, as kind of built using love and so on I mean what, what do you think was what in in hindsight was particularly kind of good about analysis services and the work you did there yeah what worked well there were, I think three things came together um, <clears throat> one was um, we had a really solid understanding of the business need, which came from um, the leaders of those teams, people like uh, Bill Baker, who was very well known, and had come from Oracle. He had been at Oracle. He had been at IRI before. <coughs> Pardon. And also um, 
people like Corey Salka, and we brought in people like um, Joy Mundy, who came from um, a really solid kind of data warehousing background and eventually went on to work at the Kimball Group. So we built a really sound business sense, and uh, that was enhanced by building great customer relations. So we had a really good sense of the business problem. Um, and then we had some some pretty inspirational kind of technical people around. Um, we'd bought in, acquired a team um actually part of the Panorama uh, company. And that team came with people like Amir Nets and um, Moshe Pasamansky, Sasha Berger, brilliant people, brilliant, brilliant technical people. And then um, on top of that, we had the, um, or maybe underneath it, I should say, we had the, the, the Microsoft infrastructure. And, and one of the things you learn when you're at Microsoft, one of the th things I, I, I really learned, and I think everybody who's been at Microsoft on a product team and then moves on, takes this with them is just how difficult it is to build solid enterprise software. And you get that infrastructure at Microsoft, you get that DNA of just how to constantly ship. And it's, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult to ship enterprise software and you, you needed that support. And so many startups have great ideas, but they're not able to build that inf enterprise infrastructure. So those three things came together. Great understanding of the business problem, the, technical genius and um, the, the Microsoft infrastructure, which enabled us to build this really solid product. I think that's really the secret. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so you, you then went on to work on integration services. And so so that, is, again, was an interesting product in that, it, to my mind, it took a slightly different approach to the kind of push-down ETL tools that I was working with. It was very kind of hub-and-spoke. It was very developer-focused. Again, you know, what, what do you think worked well with that? And, and why do you think that was so successful as a product? Um, again, it's, it's a kind of mix of things. Uh, one of the most important things about integration services is um, the original mandate for building that product was um, to make sure that Microsoft stack was relevant on big, what we called in those days, big iron. Um, by big iron, we meant um, you know machines which had, wow, a terabyte of storage. <laughs> wow. Blow your mind, you know. I think I've got a USB stick here, which is about a terabyte. But you know, that was the that was the idea. You know, we had to make Microsoft relevant in that space, and and it's important to remember that Microsoft is all about Microsoft. It's all about Windows. It's all about the stack, and so integration services was necessary because if you're going to have a data warehouse that runs on a big iron, if you want to run the world's largest data warehouses, you've got to be able to get the data in. And, and and it's not just enough to put the data in; you have to be able to transform it. So you need an ETL tool. So the, the mandate came from um, th that feeling that DTS, as it was, data transformation services, wasn't that. Yeah, yeah people loved, and this is an important part of it, people loved DTS. It was a great development tool. It was really good for what you might now call data wrangling, you know, just getting stuff together and, and making it work. But it wasn't an enterprise class ETL tool. It wasn't going to compete with Informatica or Ab Initio. It wasn't going to load a terabyte of data in a world record time. So we had to build a product that would do that, but at the same time we had to keep that developer love that we had from from DTS. Um, and I think those two things, you know, coming together, those two mandates were kind of really interesting. And then of course you put together a great team of people. Again, it's, it's so important putting together a good team of people. We had Kamal Hattie, who's a leader who now runs Power BI and just the best manager I ever worked with. Uh, Mike Blazak 
was a developer of Genius. Kirk Hazelden was a dev manager of Genius and went on to lead Microsoft's master data management product. He's written a lot of books about integration services and things. Great guy. Um, and then, of course, fantastic test team, which was which was super important. Testing was was so important to to to, to make that work. Um, and again, that comes down to the enterprise capabilities. So again, great team. Um, and then those two mandates, super large scale. Uh, developer lovely enough. yeah yeah i remember i remember at the time being a consultant where again working with oracle technology we used to use dts to move data between oracle databases because it was so right. much easier to use than, than it was than, so than much oracle easier than anything else wasn't it? exactly yeah and, and and i was reading an article i think it was about you a while ago and talking about how you worked with the data mining technology in that kind of space as well and you put data mining technology into the kind of etl processes there is, is that something that you can talk about i mean that sounds kind of yeah, quite absolutely. interesting yeah you know, um, so Microsoft not only has development teams, we also have Microsoft Research, which was a tremendous resource of super smart people doing fundamental research. One of the things that was interesting was how do you get that technology into the products? And not many people were doing that. I mean, Microsoft Research was coming up with fundamental research, but sometimes it wasn't being productized. And we just loved working with the, the team. So one of the things we came up with, myself and one of the leaders of the data mining team, um, very small guy called Xiaoyi Tang, and um, we developed a system which used um, data mining algorithms. Now, data mining algorithms look for um, patterns in data. So you look at existing data, find the patterns, and then you can apply those patterns to new data. So for example, you could um, look at data which is coming in, say, of, of customer data, and you can do, run a clustering model on it, and you can find clusters of likely customers. And that's a very classic data mining algorithm. A new customer comes along, and you can say, which cluster do they fit in? But there's something else you can do, which is you can actually look at that, look at that and say, hmm, here's a customer which doesn't fit into any cluster. Maybe there's actually something wrong with the data. You know, that, that this customer is an outlier, then there's potentially something wrong. So what we did very uniquely was we took the ETL process and we integrated that kind of predictive analytics into ETL process. So you could run data, you know, through all the usual transformations of joining and merging and, you know, filtering and so on. And then you could run it in the ETL process through a data mining algorithm and say, does this, does this data smell good? <laughs> does, it, does it look as if it's an outlier or not? And if it's an outlier, we should probably put it down this channel and have a look at it later and make sure it's actually okay. Um, and that was very adaptive. Nobody at that point had built that kind of adaptive intelligence into ETL. People are catching up with that now. Um, I'm seeing a little bit more of that from companies like Alteryx and Trifacta and Talent. But at the time, is very unique yeah it's, it's interesting i mean so so what's your take on i suppose the data engineering movement data wrangling and and uh and i suppose kind of you know vendors like Kafka, like confluent with uh, pipeline etl i mean is that something you just think is is we've seen it before or is it a paradigm shift or, or what really i think increasingly you're going to see this kind of adaptive work you know um, becoming uh, becoming important and, and the reason for that is, is is simply because the um the, the use of data is is changing so rapidly. It used to be when we built when we built data warehouses, when, when we built you know what um, SSIS integration services was for. Your process was pretty straightforward. You had a business model in mind. 
And you took that business model, you created a logical model, physical model that represented your business. And then the data was transformed to fit that model because you already knew the kind of questions that were likely to be asked. So you structured your data in order to better answer those questions. But today, with big data, with schema, um, schema on read, with artificial intelligence, with machine learning, with all the, the, the stuff that's going on um, on, on the, um, the data science side, you really don't know what your data is going to be used for. You don't know what somebody's going to ask tomorrow. So it's very difficult to follow that structure. Um, there are still parts of the business, the financial system, which is well-structured and, and has to have its data structured in a particular way. That's fine. Uh, those, those data warehouses will probably exist for a very long time. But most of the time, you actually don't know. And so, and yet analysis is data preparation. Data preparation is an essential part of analysis. When you look at data, if you're a data science asking a question, it's still true that 80% of the work is getting your data in the right shape. So now you have to have a tool which is adaptable, responsible, responsive, and flexible enough so that you can get the data into the shape you want without necessarily knowing in advance what that shape is going to be. And certainly not knowing overnight what that shape is going to be, not, not be able to build a repeatable ETL process. And that's where this adaptability comes in. So analysis services have gone through quite a few changes over the years, um, from the original multidimensional storage to uh, the more recent tabular storage option. So what was your involvement in those changes? And looking back, you know, what's your view on, uh, on how they worked out? You know, that was starting as I was leaving uh, Microsoft. I mean, I left Microsoft six, seven years ago now. So that, that process was starting, and we were looking at the impact of you know, in-memory processing in particular was, was clearly um, the huge breakthrough at that time. PowerPivot was our first product that did that. So that was starting, and certainly at the time I left, people were already starting to experiment with tabular models and ways in which um, these analytic problems could be answered in memory. But I, I wasn't part of that process, um, or at least I was only at the very beginning. It was certainly quite a controversial change at the time. Uh, Chris Webb, who came on the show earlier in the year, talked about the big impact it had on his world and uh, certainly the, the controversy and the, the divided opinion there was at the time about how wise a move it was to move from uh, multidimensional to tabular and to MDX to DAX and so on. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned Chris. Um, Chris is a you know, always a tremendous part of our community I mean, and, and never never backward in coming forward with, um, with suggestions <laughs> and criticisms uh, in the best possible way. I don't mean, you know, overly critical. I mean, you know, he kept us honest. Yeah, exactly. And um, one of the things, I remember when we launched PowerPivot and we included, uh, you know, the DAX language in it. And, and DAX was an attempt to, to kind of take the complexities of MDX, the, the multidimensional query language, and make it at least easy enough or at least structured in such a way that it could be used within Excel by people who understand Excel formulas. And um, I mean, as you know, there's now been you know, a lot of books written about DAX and, and, and uh, a lot of work done on that. But at the time, that was our, our aim. It was to make this so simple that really you could learn it in the same way as you learn Excel formulas. And Chris and several others of the, uh, the people in the community were, oh, you can't do this. You know, this is our living. <laughs> you can't make this so easy. That, that uh, It's our job to, to, um, to help people with this. These problems aren't easy. And uh, so we created this very easy language. And I remember at the beginning of, uh, 
of that launch that, that, that Chris, in some ways, was quite upset. You know, you're making this too easy and you're hiding the complexities. And not only that, you're going to damage our business model and we're your partners. Um, and I remember about six months later, he came back to another event and said, yeah, I'm quite happy. It's not that easy. <laughs> yeah, he sounded happy when I spoke to him a while ago. But so, I mean, things always change in business and IT. And then you moved on yourself to, to, to click. And I remember at the time, yeah. I remember reading at the time, it was a quite a momentous thing. You moving on to click, really. I mean, so, so the role you were doing there, you said you, 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 look, you launched their new product. So click sense there. So what, what was that about, really? And, and what was the challenge you faced there? And, and what was the kind of the difference between that and their previous products? Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, so the first thing I, sh- I should say is that when I moved to Click, there was absolutely no negative side of that at all. You know, it's I, I, um, I love my time at Microsoft. Um, and it's kind of funny, the very fact that people saw it as a momentous thing was one of the reasons I left. It was I'd become so built in with the bricks almost at Microsoft that it was, you know, what do you do next? And and um, so it was kind of exciting to move somewhere else and and, and to, to see what they were doing. And what was interesting for me about Click um, is that Click had just been through an IPO. Uh, so I wasn't joining a startup hoping to get a big payout. They'd already been, had their IPO. What I was really interested in was here was this company from Sweden, which had been around for a long time. I mean, it'd been around for almost uh, 20 years when I joined them. Uh, they'd built this, this very unique technology. They'd had a lot of success with it. And now they're at the point where they have to really become an enterprise company. They've got their IPO, everybody's watching them, and they have to move, they have to step up. And um, what I'd said earlier in, in, in this podcast about, you know, Microsoft's ability to actually build enterprise products, that, that DNA that you kind of, you get of, of, of that process was super interesting. So I wasn't looking for a startup. I wasn't looking for a company which was already building, you know, enterprise software. I wanted that challenge of how do you take someone to the next level? And um, Click were absolutely ready for that phase shift. And what was interesting to me and the work that we did was that Click needed to do two different phase shifts at the same time, which is super difficult. On the one hand, they had a product which had been very successful for many years on the the, uh, Microsoft platform, on Windows, uh, and it was stuck and, I, and I, I'll say it. I'll say it that way. It was stuck in a paradigm, which was very much the kind of um, the dialog boxes and checkbox sort of style of configuration of the product. Thousands of options. It felt like um, quite a lot of complexity, but a lot of depth to that product. Um, but not suitable for the new world of tablets and self-service and business users genuinely kind of their own stuff. Um, so it needed a complete sort of rethink of its user experience. And at the same time, they also had to move into this enterprise class um, of software. So a very unique challenge and um, absolutely the most exciting place I could possibly have gone at that time um, because of those two challenges. And that was, uh, and it didn't disappoint. I had a great time there. The, the teams were amazing. The leadership was amazing. And um, you know, in some ways, I didn't do much there. <laughs> I, I, the teams were very functional. They, they, they're really strong people. Um, and so a lot of time, my job was just sort of explaining to people why this was important and keeping the team sort of focused on the, 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 um, the business reasons, the cultural reasons, and the technical reasons why this was important. And so long as you could keep that, if you like, that internal messaging clear, 
a lot a lot else followed from that you know um so that was it was it was a great time and um so moving on again, more recently you left Click and founded your own consultancy, TreeHive Consulting, to provide strategic advice to customers, vendors and investors working in the BI yeah. market. I'd like to spend the rest of the episode talking about the kind of issues and strategic questions you get asked about by these three t- audiences. So let's start by thinking about the actual customers of the BI software that we work with each day. What are the key success factors, the determinants of project success for end users and customers starting a BI project? You know, the... Um the successful customers are the ones who have the right culture and the right team in place, um, first of all. And the reason for that is because you can have all the software in the world and you can have absolutely the best software. You can have chosen software, which, which you think is going to meet your needs. But if you don't have the culture in place, then you're not going to be able to take advantage of it. And, and so part of this culture is... Um, are you really going to be driven by the, the decisions that you make, the, the data that you have? Or, or are you really just, um, in many cases, you, know, you still see a lot of companies which th- they have reporting more or less as a, as a tax rather than as, a, um, rather than as something that's actually transforming a business. So you know, are, the, are the companies that, that, that are successful, they're the ones who really want to understand their business and and they've got that curiosity and they've built that in to their culture and as a result they're able to give people some of the the freedom to explore and analyze and and i think that's really really important um exploration discovery analysis that's really what makes the difference if it's not that then it's just regulatory reporting and management reporting and Everybody does that, and who cares? Culture is really important. Um, and then the choice of tools is really what are the tools that support your culture, and what are the tool and, and, and what tools support your data infrastructure as it is. Um, you already have a data infrastructure. Every company has a data infrastructure. I'm a one-person contractor, and I've got a data infrastructure. I've got an accounting system, and I've got a you know customer system, and it, it might be very simple, but I've got data, and, I, and, and, and um, I need to use it. So people already have a data system. And the idea, and this was, was, was true, I think, perhaps back in the 80s and 90s, where somehow you kind of built a data system for, from scratch and built an entire infrastructure. That's kind of gone because our businesses, every business nowadays is just thoroughly native digital, and therefore the data is already there. And, and so what system will work with your existing infrastructure with the least disruption, but the maximum value from that? And then how does that work with your culture? And when I say work with your culture, I mean, you know, in some, some companies I've visited, financial services companies are very structured. And so they, they actually need systems which might be more like what you would get from, well, maybe Oracle or SAP, but increased nowadays from, you know, that classic kind of um, enterprise applications which are very structured highly governed uh, with a lot of control in them and requiring a lot of IT work in order to build out the complexity on the other hand you may have um, a culture which is much more flexible much more agile and where people are wanting to use tools like you know tableau or click or perbia because they actually want to do their own work if you give the self-service tools to the traditional structured company they're going to be very frustrated. Uh, 
And if you do it the other way around, if you give, you know, uh, kind of slow moving, highly structured, very capable tools, but still highly structured tools to, um, you know, a company which is actually trying to be agile and, and genuinely do self-service, they're going to be frustrated. So you need to have a set of tools which matches your company's cultural profile, if you like. And I think that's where success comes from. Okay, so so when I was talking to, again, talking to Chris in the previous uh, episode, he was talking about how even now, the, these days, he finds the buyers of the software he uses, well, the Microsoft software, are typically the IT department. Um, but also we hear about sort of, I suppose, the budgets moving to the business now and moving away from IT. I mean, do you see that? What do you see happening? And, and, and what do you think the impact of things moving away from IT to the business would be? Is, is it kind of good? Is it bad? I mean, you know, what's your view on that? Yeah, um, well, I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, to be honest, it, it, it is what it is. Um, but I think there's three things happening, which are, 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 are somewhat, they're all related, but they're somewhat different. Um, yes, most of the buyers are IT departments. Um, but actually, how does the IT department get to the point of buying software? Um, in other words, if you're going to do the enterprise deal, you're going to buy 10,000 desks of something, that's typically an IT department purchase, or 1,000 desks of something, that's an IT department purchase. Um, but that IT department isn't starting from scratch. Probably in that organization, there's some click users or some Tableau users or some people who've downloaded Per BI or some people who've been playing with Watson already. In other words, business users have probably already adopted some software before it gets to that big IT decision. It's not as if you go in and there's a blank slate and nobody's got anything and now IT come in like a deus ex machina and, you know, deploy a thousand desktops. It doesn't happen that way. There's always something in place before that big IT sale. And that is an important distinction. The, the difference between the, um, the business user trying something out and the IT department making an enterprise purchase is the way that budget is structured. And the IT department budget will typically come out of capital expenditure and business users are just expensing and taking it out of operational uh, accounts. And then that brings us to the question of cloud, because one of the big distinctions of cloud and subscription software is that it typically comes out of operational budgets because it's a recurring operational cost, rather than traditional licensed software, which tends to come out of um, capital budget. And so very often what you're seeing, it isn't, it's almost like an accounting process that, that's going on here, rather than anything to do with BI in itself. You know, it's where do... Where does the money come from? Which budget does it come from? And where do we want it to come from? Part of the, um, the problem here is that people, both in the past and, and now with, with cloud services, typically dramatically under, underestimate the cost of their software. As a vendor, I can tell you, it's, it's always frustrating for me that um, people, buyers so often focused in the past, and they do now, on license cost. How much is the uh, you know, the software actually costing me in terms of, um, you know, how much I'm going to pay for the license, but actually, um, the overall cost of the overall cost of ownership of software has got much more to do with maintenance, training, all those all those things, rather than um, license cost. Okay, but how, license how, cost maybe as little as yeah. ten or twenty percent. You know, but how, how can how can, I suppose anyway, how can a customer? estimate that and differentiate that between different vendors i mean we all know in a way that there's a cost to that but how how can that be useful in a decision really do you think for them or actionable in decision? yeah that's 
that's a problem where I say that you have to choose tools which fit with your culture. If you have a tool which doesn't fit with your culture, then those costs are going to be very much higher because you're you're constantly kind of working against you. It's like you're trying to you're trying to tack against the um, a wind at that point. Um, but so I think one of the things you have to do is is, is very carefully run um, proof of concepts and experiments within companies. And I think nowadays with um, the with the cloud, it's so much easier to deploy um, and, and to um, provision uh, a genuine land and expand strategy, what vendors call land and expand, where you start with a fairly small deployment and build up. Um, and why not do that in the cloud? It's, it's super easy to do compared to a traditional system or a traditional process where you would have to you know, make a, quite a large commitment up front before you can even deploy something. Um, the result being that vendors would go through this whole process of evaluations and their checklists and stuff. But if you still haven't tried the software and actually deployed it and see how people get on with it, then it's really difficult. And I've seen a lot of companies out there who have acquired software from, um, you know, Microsoft, Oracle, Business Objects, Tableau, Cognos, and it's ended up being shelfware because they've done the... Um, what they think is an initial evaluation. The buyers liked it. Very often, people in the IT department love this software. A number of times, I find people who, you know, they love Tableau because they're data guys and they love the visualization. They deploy it to a thousand desks, and you know, 990 people don't like it. It's not they don't like it. It's just, it's not their product, and they're not excited by it. Um, or sometimes it happens the other way around. <laughs> yeah, it does take. And people are tremendously excited by it. So that's why you've got to find this cultural fit, and you've got to try it. You know? Yeah. Do you have do you have much dealings with say startups? I mean, because there's obviously a whole ecosystem of BI tools. For example, like Looker, for example, and Beam, and there's a whole bunch of them out there that are quite different, I suppose. To well, they've got some similarities to the old school tools, but they're different as well. I mean, do 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 startups have a different way of buying BI and and implementing BI in your in your mind, really? Um, there's a lot of companies who are in the BI space now. You know, you look at the, the Gartner Quadrant or you yeah. look at the Gartner Cool Vendors List um, yeah. as, a, as an example. And there's just mm. a ton of good stuff out there and, and things happening. And, of course, they all want to have their own particular twist. Mm. Um, a lot of them have grown out of visualization projects, yes. academic visualization yes. projects. I think trying to follow the Tableau route because they started as an academic visualization project. Um so a lot of people are doing that. And then you have companies doing you know, sort of some really unique stuff. Um, I think Looker is, is a great product, um, great, for, very developer-focused, great for embedding, you know, um, very powerful for that, uh, pretty agile. I quite, li I quite like that. And then there's companies who have been around for a while who are actually doing interesting things like XML are doing well. Um, and then, of course, you have consolidation. So companies like Burst have kind of been acquired and quite know what's going to happen there. Um, so I think there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. One of the things that's important is, you know, when I say you find your cultural fit, typically I think we're going to move away from the idea that one tool solves all your business problems. It's, you know, oh, yeah, we're a Microsoft shop and it's all Power BI. I think you're much more likely to find that um, every company has a portfolio of tools including probably some smaller specialized BI tools, which are just super popular in the um, in particular departments. You know, so a research department will have one set of tools, and, um, a, 
R&D department might have, you know, one set of tools, a production department might have another, supply chain may have some tools that it just loves, you know, um, and these may all be different, and that's mm. fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, that's a, quite a nice lead into starting to talk about things from the perspective of vendors, really, as well. And I mean, I had uh, Timo, Elliott, Timo Elliott on the on the uh, show a little while ago, who, oh, yeah. who obviously, you know, from SAP business objects and so on. And yeah, that's a classic, I suppose, vendor who has bought a lot of products, has a complete suite of kind of BI products there as well. But I would I would suspect is, is finding it hard to be relevant in today's kind of marketplace, or at least as relevant as the business objects days. Same with Oracle as well. I mean, what what do you think the challenges are for the mega vendors out there? I mean, in, in today's market, is it is it the same as before or is it changed or what really? Yeah, well, the challenge for a mega vendor is that they're mega and um, that's, a, that's a huge, that's, that's a huge problem. Well, it comes with a huge customer base and it comes with the fact that people essentially run their business on your products. Um, you know, when I was at Microsoft, one of the entertaining uh, sort of, conversations we used to have just about the sheer scale of the number of customers we were dealing with. You know, if you're in Excel and you decide to change the visualizations in Excel, you're changing the visualizations for 500 million people, many of whom have spent a lot of time getting their visualizations just right using the existing tool. Um, I, I remember, you know, things like ADO, um, ADO, the, just the, the data activity teams, you know. Um, I remember having a conversation with Alyssa Henry, who later went on to Amazon and, and Square, about, you know, downloads. We had put a little tool up and we, we, we had a, I think we had 2,000 downloads on the first day. We were awfully excited about it, you know. She she reminded us that when they, they would release a patch for ADO, it would get 2,000 downloads an hour for, you know, it's just a different scale. Now, if you're at Oracle or you're at Business Objects and you have built BI products into your business suites, you have, at SAP and Oracle, you have millions of customers, thousands of customers around the world who are running some of the world's largest businesses on your software. Um, and you've built it in a way that they, this becomes mission critical to them. That then becomes really difficult to change. Um, and, and changing that is like, you know, try, you're trying to trying to refit the engine while the ship is sailing. It's, it, it's really tough. And, and, and it holds back innovation. You can innovate at the edges, but really difficult to innovate at the, at the heart of that product. So um, that's the challenge for them. And frankly, I'll, I'll be really blunt, neither Oracle or um, SAP have been up to that challenge. No, um, no. You can just tell that. Yeah. So, so They've both get... done innovative but. Yeah. It, again, I mean, funny enough, I, I work under one of the guys who was in charge of Oracle development back in the Oracle days. I mean, I, we, neither of us are there now, but yeah, talking to him about how that worked. And, and it, it, one thing that was interesting as well from what Oracle did and what SAP are doing is trying to kind of embed analytics and now in, now artificial intelligence into uh, into their applications. I mean, do you think that's the kind of the, the way that they should be going to differentiate themselves in, especially, as, I suppose, also Salesforce with Einstein as well? Is, is that a route right. they should take, do you think? Um, I think it's a route they have to take. Um, yeah. I've been having a little Twitter discussion recently with uh, Rita Salam and Cindy Housen of Gartner about... Um, the penetration of BI, and they've been saying that, you know, penetration of BI is still about 30%. And the argument that I was making with them was, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe that's the right number. Maybe 30% is, you know, if you think of um, BI as primarily being used by decisions, you know, to, to, to support decisions, 
it's still decision support. After all these years, it's still all about decision support. Then how many people in an organization actually make decisions that require that kind of support? Maybe it is 30%. Um, and Rita came back and made the great point that, well, actually, if it's embedded and this analytics are embedded in the operational applications that you can use, then in some businesses it could be 100%. If you're in a call center and you know your information about which call to take next and how to answer that call and how long you should spend on it is actually coming from a BI system, well, why not 100% penetration? Uh, which is a good point. So I think when companies actually want to own the entire work stream of a company, and that's absolutely ambition of companies like SAP and Oracle and IBM, and, um, or if you want to own the entire sales process of a company, if you're if you're Salesforce or the entire marketing process, if you're Marketo, then it makes absolute sense to to build um, embedded intelligence into those systems, and this is where the intelligence side comes in. Is it are you just giving information, in which case it's embedded analytics, or you're trying to give insight? And if you're trying to give insight, then building in intelligence systems would be absolutely the way to go. And I see um, in the world of startups, there are some sort of general purpose AI startups. There's people building algorithms and people building engines. But the most interesting ones to me are companies who are building AI into existing business scenarios and making them better. People who are building AI into supply chain management or people who are building AI into you know, the packaging software that runs packaging systems or people who are building AI into labor contracting systems or people building AI into hospital or, or hotel management systems. That starts to get really interesting. But I guess, I guess there's I guess that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, obviously, there's been the press recently about IBM Watson and, and there's always been the kind of feeling it's their, their products have kind of, I suppose, underwhelmed. I mean, you're going back to the days of when you used data mining before in ETL and, and going forward to now. Why do you think it's so hard to get the value out of AI, or why do you think there's a perception that there'll be it's hard to do? Um, well, I think the perception it's hard to do is because it is hard to do. <laughs> uh, you know, the idea that this can be made easy or generic um, is a little misleading. You know, um, so traditional data mining do, was pretty. In some ways, it was pretty straightforward. It was technically difficult. This is important. It was, it was technically difficult, but it was pretty straightforward conceptually. You find patterns, and you match data against patterns. And, and those patterns give you insights. And so when you use um, a recommendation algorithm um, on Amazon, you know, customers who bought this also bought that, you, you're getting some insight from patterns, and it's pretty useful. Um, there's a lot of work to do to make it happen, but I think it's easy to understand. AI is a little bit different because in AI, you're giving the system to a certain extent some autonomy to not only find patterns, but to, to discover for itself what is important. Um, and then when you look at the applications of AI, even the simplest applications, uh, you start to realize that that's, that itself is a huge challenge because, um, I mean, this has been understood in AI for many years. They used to call it the frame problem. What is it that's important? How do you know what, what's actually relevant? The self-driving car, how does it know what's important? <laughs> it can look at all this stuff in the street. How does it know what's significant? Um, never mind, I mean, can it look at everything and process every single, you know, um, every single variable? Well, what, 
you know, even what variables do you identify in the first place is a challenge. So, so it is difficult. Um, that's why embedding it into well-defined business scenarios is actually very effective because in that case you reduce the scope and you enable the AI to do what it's really good at, which is discovering its own patterns and discovering its own solutions within those patterns and often being able to do it in ways that are surprising to human beings. Um, and that's where the great advantage is. Okay, okay. So, so uh, looking at, I suppose, the, the uh, I suppose, commercial versus open source question, something that's, that's something that probably you and I have noticed over the years is how much open source has sort of come into the world that we work in. So Hadoop obviously is there. Um, you know, Linux is a kind of an operating system that's very, uh, very kind of popular now. Within BI, though, it still seems to be that that's a largely a commercial tools kind of market. Did you, do you see that open source being relevant in the BI market in the future? Is it relevant now? Why, why do you think it perhaps hasn't been so sort of prevalent as it is in the database on the OS kind of market? Any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the main reason is, in fact, because the BI tools that we're very familiar with grew out of um, either commercial database applications, um, but they were also targeted at enterprise deployments. And enterprises were traditionally reluctant to bring on um, open source products. And then you started to see some companies really being smart around the edges of that. I think Talent, um, the um, I, I think Talent did a great job of building uh, an open source data integration tool, which was tremendously competitive and powerful and suitable for enterprise. Um, JasperSoft did some of that around BI, maybe not quite so successfully, but they did build a, a very good um, application. But enterprises were reluctant to take it on. But now what we've seen is, I think, one very significant shift. Well, two very significant shifts. Of course, the, the Apache projects, the Apache um, infrastructure is, is so compelling. And it, by its very nature, it's open source. Um, it could only have grown as quickly and as effectively as it has done by being open source. And, and that has uh, been very powerful. And then um, the other thing is in the academic world, R really took over. So as a language for analysis, especially for data mining and predictive analytics. And that has become so pervasive that companies like Statistica, Statsoft, SAS, um, who have specialized, SPSS, you know, companies have specialized for years in predictive analytics, have had to adopt R as perhaps almost a primary language in some cases, even though they have their own stacks. And that's because that's the language that people have been learning on. They've been learning at university. They come out, they're fluent in R. They, they know Python, and so those are the tools they expect to use. Okay, okay. So last, last question from the kind of vendor side. I mean, so you must have nurtured and mentored uh, lots of product managers over your time and, and worked under some good ones and managed some good ones and bad ones or whatever. You know, what, what, in your view, it makes a good product manager looking after a BI tool in this space? What are the kind of the, I suppose, the qualities, the techniques, the approaches that you see that work well for product management in this kind of area? You know, they, that's a, that is a great question. And, and the, um, the, one of the first things is empathy for, for the customer. Um, and that, or empathy with the customer, I should think. And that, that is the ability to, to actually really understand what a customer is trying to do. Um, I would generally say, for example, when I was at Microsoft, uh, where we had summer interns used to come along. You know, you could have summer interns in development and summer interns in test, and they would do great work, often did outstanding work. 
summer interns in product management typically didn't work very well. These are people who are currently at university. And um, part of the problem was that um, over the course of a summer uh, internship, they didn't have enough time to develop empathy with a customer. But they also hadn't seen enough of the world. You know, they, didn't, they hadn't been in business. They hadn't been out there working on a day-to-day basis. And so I, I actually find that experience outside of the field that you have specialized in is actually quite important. And if you don't have that experience, how to develop that experience, how to listen to customers. There, there's a great book by the designer Indy Young called Practical Empathy. And, and I think that's a, that's, that's a great um, summary of what we need in product management. We need practical empathy. We need the ability to understand what customers actually want and often to dig behind that and understand what the needs are that are driving that. Not, not just understand what the customer is asking you. This is not just about, you know, I ask a customer, send a customer a questionnaire and that's, that's all I need. You, you need to get behind what the customer is asking for. Why are they asking for it? What are the real business problems, the real personal problems, if you like, that might be behind? So that's important. Um, but the second part of it is then you need to be able to synthesize that into a technical answer to that problem. And that, that, that's also difficult. That comes with, with experience. But you need to, that doesn't mean that you need to be a coder or you need to be, uh, you know, um, a great developer. But it does mean that you have to be able to take, for often very abstract um, concepts that are coming from business scenarios and somehow make them into a product, make them into a, in, in, into a productized answer. And um, the third thing is that you need to be per- persuasive, influential. Um, you're not building the product. You're not writing the code. You know, when I was a consultant myself and I wrote my own code, I had an idea. I made it happen. Um when you're a product manager, you have an idea. You've got to persuade someone else to make it happen. And when you've got a very, um, often very smart, very you know, very intelligent, very insightful, sometimes very opinionated developer on the other side who says, "Well, I want to do it this way. I want to do it that way." How do you persuade them to do it the way that you think needs to be done? And that's you can't order them. You know, you've got no power to do that. Um, so it's you know, these things are really important. The empathy with the customer the uh, ability to technically synthesize that into a, into a concept, into a product, and then the ability to communicate that and persuade uh, and influence. These are, these are the skills. And these are all very soft skills, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that coming, <clears throat> coming, from, a, coming from a consulting background and running my own business and being the CTO, for example, I was used to base, basically, if I say something, it happens. But the thing that right. shocked, shocked me coming to product management is you have no actual direct reports. All you have is the ability to, to win the argument, to influence people, and things happen with a product and momentum gets behind a product because of your ability to actually kind of put a good argument together and to show there's traction there and so on. And that's, that, as you say, that that ability to influence and, em- and empathize and so on is, is, is really important. It is, yeah. And, uh, you know, I had a, when I went to Click, I had a lot of fun with this, or fun, in a, if you like that sort of thing, um, because the, it's a Swedish company and the development team was based in Sweden. And, and in Sweden, people make decisions in a very collegiate um, way uh, with a strong emphasis on consensus. Everyone's got to agree um, before they can move forward. And so, and I, and I was, you know, quite frankly, I was I was burning the house down. I had all sorts of ideas that were shaking up their entire business model and their entire customer model. Um, I had to use my, my my powers of persuasion, my powers of influence, um, 
far more than I'd ever used at Microsoft, which was, it was, it was a challenge, but it was, it was enjoyable too. Interesting. So just two, a couple of last questions, really. So, so the first one is, from a kind of M&A perspective and acquisitions and, and a generally consolidation or movement in the market, you know, a few years ago, there were a lot of big acquisitions. There was IBM buying Cognos, there was, you know, Oracle buying Hyperion and so on. You know, do you see that continuing or has the market kind of settled down now? Where do you see changes in, in that happening in the future, really? What's the direction in that area? You know, it's like a forest fire. You know, the, the, every, every few years, the forest fires sweep through the Pacific Northwest. And um, what comes afterwards are the green shoots, which start to appear again, you know, and the, the, all, the, all that dead wood has been burned away. And I see consolidation like that. You know, um, consolidation happens because companies get to the point where they're close to this, this, this tipping point between being a startup and being an enterprise company. Um, and then they get acquired into an enterprise infrastructure or they themselves grow and start to make acquisitions and they become this enterprise infrastructure. But that leaves space and it leaves space for the new quirky tool that solves a particular problem that an analyst needs. And so when you looked at tools like, you know, Tableau, for example, and I think Tableau is a great example of this, um, a great visualization tool um, that came out of um, an academic project. And virtually every Tableau user I knew in, say, um, 10 years ago, also had other tools. They already had corporate BI. They already had business objects deployed by their IT department. They already had Cognos deployed by their IT department. But they had a particular personal need for this new tool. And now Tableau has become an enterprise product, and there's, there's uh, you can go to Tableau customers, and you'll find that yeah they've got Tableau, but you know there's there's these two three other people who've got some new thing that does what Tableau doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and that's getting exciting. And then there's always new approaches. Um, I think one of the exciting new approaches that I've seen recently has been, um, you know, well, we've talked about open source, and I think that's one new approach. Uh, we've seen company um, like Domo, you know, Domo, the um, Josh James runs, and, and, and they've done some fascinating work by focusing not on the analyst, the consultant, the kind of person that, that, that you and I have worked with so much, but going straight to the C-suite and saying, we're building a tool for the, the, the CXO um, who doesn't have time to, to build all this stuff themselves but needs smart, adaptive insights. Uh, and that's a different approach, which is, you know, um, I think they're, I don't think they're as successful as they would like to be, but um, I think it's a very unique approach. So, you know, the consolidation and acquisitions, they leave space for these new vendors to come in with a new approach. And that's that's exciting. Yeah, exactly. And last question, really. This is one that's personal for me, really. From the, what, how do you see the services market changing here? Because again, with the move to cloud and the move to, I suppose, the the kind of the uh, the business people owning the budgets and so on. It struck me that there wasn't such a market these days for large scale, you know, enterprise, uh, I suppose, implementations of BI tools. How do you see the services market changing in the kind of BI space? You know, is it going to go away? Is it going to change? What do you think on that? You know, um, the services market in the past has been very focused on technical knowledge. You know, we're technical experts who can come in and do the stuff that you can't do. Um, and I think that has to change. The best people in services um, have always had that technical knowledge, but they've had this if you like product manager like ability to take a business problem and turn it into that, you know, to, to turn it into that technical um, solution. And I think there's going to be a greater emphasis on that. The idea of um, 
the service of a service consultant who's just really capable of doing the technical stuff is largely going to go away. I think there'll always will be there will always be people who've got some technical difficulties. I, I know one company just now who are really struggling with, you know, a scalability issue, uh, which comes from a design problem in their database. Absolutely, they need a technical consultant who can come in and sort that for them. But how much of that work is out there? Not as much as they used to be, because systems are becoming much more um, self-maintaining and, 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 and um, self-tuning. So, so those problems are starting to go away. Um, but I think this ability to take a business problem and sort of crystallize it into a, into a solution is something which uh, many people struggle with. And, and that's where the, the, the services industry is going to be successful in the future. Okay. And, and so that leads in quite nicely to, to what you're doing now. So you obviously left Click and you're now kind of have your own consultancy. So what's the kind of the problem you're solving for people and, and, and where, what made you go into that kind of area really? Um, I'm really interested in the, 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 the challenge of where data and analytics fit into company strategies. Um, and, and my belief is, is, is very simple, that every company nowadays, every business is a data business. Um, we all have data. Every business has data, and, and therefore they need a strategy. Because if, if every company is a data business, then every company is an, an analytics business to get the best out of that. And if every company is an analytics business, then every company should be an advanced analytics business because we can use advanced analytics to get even more value out of it. So how do you, you know, particularly I'm interested in working with software vendors. What are you doing as a software vendor with the data that you're generating, with the data that you're acquiring? Um, are you getting the best out of that for yourself? Are you getting the best out of that for your customer? And how are you analyzing and adding value to that data. And so what I do, my, my, my job these days, is I go to um, investors and I help them with who should you be looking at and who are the interesting data companies out there. But more importantly, I help them with their existing portfolio of companies and you know they could be doing all sorts of different things, software for the legal business, software for the hotel business, you know, that sort of thing. But what's the data strategy that those companies have and can we help them build extra value into their products and therefore get extra value out of their products um, by developing a data strategy? So I work with investors, I work with their portfolios, and, and then increasingly I, I go out with customers as well and help them you know, with, their, with their strategy. And then the other side of this is I, I have a kind of innovation and design practice, which is... I like to go in and do a series of workshops with companies and really help them um, develop innovation strategy. I think that's 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 a lot of fun doing Fantastic. that. Fantastic. And how will people find out about what you do? Is there a website you've got, or, or how will people find out how to contact you? Yeah, they can they can find me at um, treehivestrategy.com. Okay. Um, we call it Treehive because we have this this crazy treehouse that we are shaped like a beehive that I I use as my thinking space. So treehivestrategy.com is my Fantastic. fantastic. Well, it's been fantastic speaking to you, Donald. I mean, it's really great to hear about the old days of kind of Microsoft and Click, but particularly, I suppose, now about data strategy, understanding kind of how the market's going and so on. So it's been really good to speak to you, and thank you very much for coming on the show. Great fun, Mark. Thank you very much. It's great. Thank you. Thanks, Donald. Thanks, Donald.